your use in my name in vain for your power and for your personal gain for your advantage for your wealth and for your fame There's a quote that's going to come up in the guy's conversation. And it says, it is so ironic that the same kind of groups, if you're going to draw a Venn diagram, the same kind of groups that really want to make America Christian again, or Britain Christian again, are the same kind of groups that really don't like immigration. Let's be honest. And yet, if you really wanted to make America Christian again, you'd be letting in everyone from the global south who wanted to come. That is how you make America Christian again. I'm Seth. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. And that is a massive question, right? Making something Christian again. What does that even mean? How are we going to do that? Is that the point of Christianity to begin with? I'm not certain that it is. I'm not certain that that term even matters anymore. And I'm aware of how offensive that could be to many people, including maybe you if you're listening. And so I want to ask you to stay with me. I brought back Dr. Stephen Backhouse, who would have been on the show a few months ago. Um, It was one of the most popular episodes of the year. But we ended that briefly because on that day I had overcommitted myself and I had three interviews to record because I am insane. And I'm also not good at time management. And so Stephen came back. We discussed further about Christianity. We discussed what the heart of a Christian nation needs to be through a lens of Bonhoeffer and through a lens of the New Testament. We discussed like what we're doing with the Bible when we try to use it as an instruction manual to run any country. We discussed passive resistance, benign ambivalence. We covered so much ground. We even talked in brief about QAnon and it is an honor to have him back on the show and it's an honor to present this conversation to you. Right before we go, I have a request. Do me a favor. I have some lofty goals for next year for the show, but I'm going to need your help. You could support the show on Patreon. You could rate and review the show because that's what you should have done three weeks ago when you thought about it. And you're like, you know what? I can actually afford a cheap McDonald's coffee once a month to support the show. But not everybody can do that. Some people can. But just share the show on social media or refer it to a friend because that is the way that things just grow. And so do me a favor, find your favorite episode from this past year or your favorite two or three episodes and send them to a friend, put them on social media, tag me in it. I would love to know which episodes resonated with you because that could honestly help inform next year. And with that, let's roll the tape with this conversation with Dr. Stephen Backhouse. In vain, your public prayers I abhor in my ears, they have become astray. You ignore the poor Let's do it. Dr. Backhouse, welcome back to the show. I like to get that doctor out of the way. You earned it. We'll use it. And then I'm not going to use it again. So Very good. <laughs> um, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being willing to, um, to come back on for part two. And I'll pause there because we had mm. a part one. It was maybe a month ago. I don't know when people are listening because this is the internet. I actually forget the actual release date, but it was early in October 
We talked about politics, Christian nationalism, President Trump, the church, a lot of things, and mm-hmm. a lot of feedback from that show, which we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't listened, you should probably hit stop and go back and listen to that one so that maybe there's a little better context for today. You don't have to, though. You're a full-grown adult listening to this, so you can do whatever you want to do. Um, can I hit stop? I can't remember everything I said. It <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you want to cheat, there's a transcript of the episode. Just go right to the website. You can read exactly what you said. Maybe control F it and find a word that you want, and then that'll tell you what you said. Yeah, those transcripts... It's fun to watch the people that link back to them. Like there's a JSTOR link to one of them. From what I understand, like JSTOR is like a academic, like I don't even know what what it exactly. Academic journals and things. It's linked to one of the episodes. And I was like, when I saw it and the things pop through, I'm like, well, what is that? Like, I don't know what Somebody has used your podcast as their reference. Fantastic. I hope they loved it. I hope it was good. It's probably a reference of what not to do. It's probably a reference of what not to do. You're a footnote in the (laughs) academic halls. I did it. Brilliant. I did. I wish I could remember the episode. Yeah, I just scroll through. Good job, everybody. Good job. Can I say this in church? Yeah, mostly good job to the guests because I'm sure it wasn't something that I said. So anyhow, welcome back. So we had talked about just nationalism and politics in America and, and overarchingly in other, you know, just the nationalism that, that is, seems to plague the world. And you had sent me a message saying, we really ended on a lot of down notes, but there is hope. So I'd like to start there. Hope for what? That we'll fix it? Hope that we'll somehow as a church figure out how to better do this? Like hope for what? I Because this is, for context, we're recording this the day after the last debate, which was more civil. Yeah. But what do you mean? Hope Hope how? Well, so a lot of people do ask me uh, for hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and, and I don't know if I can give quite the hope that people want. I, it's really, now I'm not, I'm not equating myself at all to, you know, I, I have a, I have a, a she's a Af- British African priest, a friend of mine in the, here in the UK, and she's a black English woman. And people always want her as the public face of black Christianity, you know, in the church of England hmm. to, to, Oh, can you just tell us something to be hopeful about? Like, look at the BLM movement, look at the injustice and look at the, all these problems, please. Can you just give us some hope? And she's basically like, Mm-mm. no, it's bad. <laughs> it's I, you just want me to very quickly slap a little bandaid on top of all this. Right. And, uh, and so I'm not equating myself with her because I think she she's doing more important work than I am. Her name is Sharon Milbank, by the way. Very lovely. But anyway, the Sharon's um, getting an email. Point, Here we go. No, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, the point is like, I feel like that sometimes like when she said that I was like, Oh, I feel kind of like that. Sometimes I get people who want a happy story. But for me, the hope is not that you're going to fix it. And the election is not going to fix it. And it didn't get broke in 2016. It broke a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's not going to get fixed. But the hope is that the truth will emerge. So I'm a big fan of Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard. I can't even remember if I talked about Soren Kierkegaard. We did, because right I remember having yeah. to Google how to spell his last name, because okay. autocorrect is not happy with it. So... <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, my wife tells me I'm very bad at plugging my own stuff. So I'm going to plug my own. I wrote a biography of him a while ago. And it's like a, a book meant to be read by normal people. And it has some sense of why his life might be relevant to modern life today, right? So 
I wrote it. It's called Kierkegaard, A Single Life. And mm -hmm. I published it a few years ago. But in the back of my mind was always how he offers some kind of hope to our Christendom today. Mm. So his big contribution was he said, Christendom has done away with Christianity. Cultural Christianity, people who think their nations are inspired by God or that their nation was a Christian nation or that, you know, and he's thinking about Denmark in the 1850s. And the kind of thing he's describing is America in the 2020s mm. as well. So don't think, oh, we're not a European, so that's not relevant. It actually is relevant. And one of his things was, he was like, I'm trying to reintroduce Christianity into Christendom because Christendom thinks, it, this cultural Christianity has introduced you to the idea that, that your patriotism and your Christianity are the same thing or that your membership in a culture is the same as being a Christian. But when you're born into a Christian culture, you never become a Christian because you think you already are one. Mm. And that means there's a whole lot of people walking around who have never actually started to follow Jesus. And the main thing stopping them from following Jesus is because they think they already are. Hmm. So for Soren Kierkegaard, he said, look, to be honest, I'm not even trying to make anyone become a Christian. All I want is honesty. I just want honesty. And he, he wrote at the end of his life, if you don't want to read my biography of him, go and read uh, his get a collection of his books called The Attack Upon Christendom, which is a collection of his writings at the end of his life. And it's a series of, sort of newspaper articles and editorials that he wrote where he just said, look, I'm like the fireman who's racing through town at midnight, clanging the bell, <laughs> telling everybody that the town is on fire. I don't have all the solutions to fixing the town being on fire. But my job right now is to just tell you it's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're in big trouble. <laughs> and yeah. that's part of the process. We need that part as well. Because right now, the sleepy citizens of Christendom think that everything is good. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, my job is to tell you that it's bad. In fact, he said, I'm going to make you vomit. He switched metaphors and said, I'm like the doctor that has to give you a noxious chemical to make you vomit. Mm. Because it feels bad to vomit, but it's because you've got poison in you. You need to get it out. And so the hope, he said, was the hope was just in looking at yourself honestly. That's where the hope comes from. Once you realize how bad it is, now we can start to do something. Two things I want to stretch apart there. Um, yeah. You said what you wrote, and I will agree. At the end of the last episode, I'd asked you to plug the places that you wanted people to go. And you're like, well, don't read my stuff. Read some good stuff. So your <laughs> wife is correct. Um, so she is accurate. Um, yeah. But I will say humility is a very good quality to have. So I appreciate that. Because nobody <laughs> likes the guy that's like, just read my stuff. Nobody, nobody yeah. wants to talk to them. Don't, don't to your heart person. sink when you're in a Christian meeting and the speaker always says, you can buy my books at the back afterwards. Yeah, and yeah. My heart always um, sinks. Yeah, I uh, yeah I struggle with some of the things. Just a side tangent. So like, I lead worship at my church, and when I do well, and some days are better than others. Like someday, I'm like, oh, that sounded good. Internally, I'm like, oh, uh -huh. I did a good job today. And other people are like, great job, great job. And I just stand there like, I don't know what to say. Thank, th <laughs> thank you doesn't feel right because I feel like the expectation is I do a great yeah. job. Like I, I, you don't reward a fish for swimming. You know, right, like right. so I just I just go oh, oh thank you. Have a thank good you. Sunday. And my wife will like. What are you doing? Like, say, I don't know. I don't know what to say. My what, CDs are for sale at the back. Yeah, 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 I just have to make them. Um, what is a normal person? Because you said you wrote 
it for a normal person. So what do right. you mean normal? Like person that didn't grow up in the church, person without an, a degree? Uh, uh, you know, I think what, my, yeah. my ideal audience was the educated non-specialist. So me. So he was, I mean, at the end of the day, he was a philosopher and a mm-hmm. theologian. So, but if you are interested in, you know, he invented the phrase leap of faith, for example. So if you know anybody that's ever taken a leap of faith or knows somebody who says that. Every Disney movie. Well, Kierkegaard invented it. It was in Spider-Man, you know, the multiverse. Yeah. And Kierkegaard invented that phrase. Uh, he, if you think that it's important to walk the talk, practice what you preach. If you think that authenticity is a value and that it's, it's not just enough to be born into a culture. You actually have to own it for yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that jargon of authenticity is, he gave us that. That is Kierkegaard. We are Kierkegaardians, whether we know it or not. Mm. And he's worth paying attention to. And what's more is he was deeply, deeply Christ-centered when he did it. He thought the incarnation was the most important event in the history of events happening. Mm. And that reality, if it's going to be real, like if the incarnation happened, then it is the most important event in the history of events happening. And so... Everything you do and say and all your identity and all your plans have to somehow constantly be rotating and revolving around the incarnation. Otherwise, they're false. Hmm. So he was like, I can't prove it. I can't prove that the incarnation happened. But if it did, then a lot of things in our life will look different or should look different. Hmm. And if you... So this isn't like an argument that's going to convince your Christopher Hitchens or your Richard Dawkins or your Sam Harris's. Like it's not an argument. It's more of an appeal to people who already claim to be followers of the incarnation. It's just an appeal. It's like a moral intellectual appeal. It's like, if you think that the incarnation is true, well then this is some of the, uh, some of the implications of that. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> this you is how reality looks. Yeah. So I'm, my kind of readers are those sort of readers. They're not, I'm not, I'm not looking for philosophers and academic. The world doesn't need another academic biography of, a, of Kierkegaard. There's a few thick ones out there who will <laughs> hold your doors shut or open very well. And they will, they will, <laughs> they will be used to, you know, they'll be used to uh, a wobbly table will be fixed by the Kierkegaard biographies that are out there. The world, and those are good biographies. The world doesn't need those. But I think that perhaps this really exciting, interesting follower of Jesus who changed the way we imagine and the way we talk to ourselves about ourselves, mm. most educated people don't know who, anything about that life. They might have heard the name, yeah, but they don't know anything about him. And I just thought, I think his life is really interesting. And he has all sorts of things. He had a because of his stand against cultural Christianity, against patriotism, essentially, because he thought that patriotism was a vice that was tempting you away from the way of Jesus, he was, of course, pilloried and attacked by his society. There was, not just because of patriotism, but because of his stand against common sense and common cultural morality, he was attacked by the press. He had a two-year campaign waged against him in the popular press. There were caricatures of him. Children mm. used to run out on the street and make fun of him. We have records of his money, of, of his accounts, and he had to pay lots of money to hire a cab to drive him out of town so he'd go for a walk. 
hmm. because he couldn't walk in town anymore because people would make fun of him because he bothered to take a stand against oh, man. common Christian morality. You know? I know so little about him. And he's so interesting. And he, and he had a, he had a really beautiful love of love, love life. Like he had a really beautiful love affair where he broke it up on purpose because he didn't want to draw his fiance into his life, which was always going to be a, an attack on culture. Hmm. And he didn't want to curse her by bringing her in. And he had to engineer a way to break up with her. So she wouldn't be devastated. And it's just, huh. this guy was not living in some little academic cloister. He was living in a really interesting life. Gracious. And there was a riot at his funeral. Can you imagine today huh. any philosopher who died and there would be a riot at his funeral because of how much, I'm not sure today. He caused. I'm not sure today if the average populist knows of a philosopher alive. Period. Unless they're currently in college, they just right. They, yeah, they just they, unaware. And, and it was, unaware. And it was all because he was trying to be Jesus-like in the way he think thought about the world. Those tomes yeah. that you were talking about, the ones that are going to hold open your door. So they're large enough then, and and I'm in a pun mood. So that's that's the mood I'm in. So right. they could literally, they're big enough and strong enough to literally hit the nail on the head and do some damage. <laughs> yes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Slam them in there. You could do some carpentry. <laughs> All right. So um, you used the word good a few minutes ago, and you used it right. in your message as well. If there are good things that we should focus on. So yeah, what are you okay. defining as good? And then what are some of those things? So, and maybe how so do we focus on them? Because last, last time we talked, I, I just was saying it's, it's a bad state right now where we have a lot of people who call themselves Jesus followers who are calling evil good and good evil. Mm. And it's been happening for a long time. And I don't think it's, you can fix it. I don't think it's fixable. I don't want to say irredeemable because that's not a judgment for me to make. But I don't think it's fixable. So what's good about it is that there are some people who are now really clearly. Well, I saw this quote the other day. I'm stealing it. It was somebody else's Twitter quote. And it was, you know, we've reached the stage where calling yourself a follower of Jesus means giving up your cultural identity as a Christian. I saw that as well somewhere. Yes. Maybe maybe and you shared I, it. Maybe I said it in the last time, but I was like, no, That's... no, no. I saw it somewhere else. I forget where I saw it, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. I remember seeing that as well. And I, quite... I paused to stop on it. Yeah. It's very Kierkegaardian to say that. And, and, and I think there's some hope in that because I think what passes for Christianity in the majority world, certainly in the American evangelical world, certainly in the sort of Canadian cult, Canadian evangelicalism I grew up with, what people are absolutely convinced is Christian and are, and are doing so with very sincere, honest hearts is just so far away from anything that anybody in the New Testament would have recognized. Mm that it, it's actually hard to imagine that you sound like you're exaggerating when you say, let's, let's make a list of the top 10 things that American evangelicals value. And then you put it against, and sometimes it'll be the exact opposite yeah. to what the new Testament Christians valued. And so the dichotomy now is so stark. I think it's becoming easier to see. And so a lot of people, there's hope now in that the way of Jesus is becoming much more clear. Hmm. And the minority that follow the way of Jesus, I think have always been the minority. So you always hear these stories about, oh, we've, we were a Christian nation and we're not Christian anymore and we've lost our way. And no nation that ever called itself Christian was ever Christian. Mm. <laughs> no, no, none of them were. None of them were. They all were some sort of Christianized morality and common sense and military expansionism wrapped up with 
religious language, but they, none of them were ever following the way of Jesus. So you didn't fall from some heady height. You never were up there. Hmm. And that's true for every nation that calls itself Christian. Germany, the UK, the Roman Empire. It's just true for all of them, right? Yeah. So the fact that we've got a state where that lie of the Christian nation is just shown to be so shallow, so hollow, I don't find it totally bad that that's happened. I don't think that America as a Christian nation is redeemable. I think once American followers of Jesus stop trying to make their nation Christian again, now we're going to start to see some good stuff happen. But the followers of Jesus have always been a minority within any Christian nation. It's not like the Christians have reduced in number. It's kind of the same number has always remained. And this is where Kierkegaard makes this point as well about people always complain, oh, Christendom, you know, we've lost so many... So many people used to call themselves Christian and now we don't anymore. And he's like, well, no, it's just people are becoming more honest now that they know what Christianity is and they don't want it. Now they're just being honest. Surely it's better to be honest than to be a hypocrite. Mm. Yeah. I've used that I argument this, often. You know, there's these, there's these census that comes out all the time. And I'm, I'm sure the American situation is the same. I don't know the poll numbers, but here in the UK, we had these national census and in 20, 2001, there was 72% of the population said it was Christian. Oh, yeah. Mm. And then in 2011, it, it dropped to, you know, 60% or something. And so all the Christians here, especially the kinds that you can imagine, the, the, the real culture warrior ones, oh my gosh, we're, we, we've lost 12% of the Christianity has declined by 12% of the population. And I'm a guy who's done work on those numbers. And I know that that 72% in 2001, those questions were deliberately linked to ethnic identity and national identity. And the census takers were treating Christian basically the way we would treat white or white English speaker. And so a lot of those people who were checking the Christian box were actually checking it because they were being asked questions about their ethnic identity, hmm. for example. And then in the next census, they moved the question and they moved it to a different section of the poll. And they also started to ask you more details. So instead of just checking the box Christian, you now had to ask, are you Roman Catholic, Protestant? Are you Baptist, Charismatic, Pentecostal? They made you think about it. And this time, 60% of the population or whatever it was, checked the box. Yeah. And it's not that we all of a sudden became 12% less Christian. We just became 12% more honest, which is surely a good thing. I'm assuming the nuns, so in America, the, the Pew yeah. Research Study, and Barna as well, but Pew usually, um, I think the nuns are the fastest religious organization in America, fastest yeah. growing behind, I want to say Islam and Sikh, or Sikh, Sikh, I always yeah. say it wrong. Um, and then, you know, Christian, what's funny is, uh, and Professor Sunshang Ra over at North Park has done some work on this. If you look at immigration policies and immigration inflow, versus yeah. the poll data that shows the amount of people that call themselves Christians, they are literally a mirror image. So as immigrants yes. are unable to come in and stay, as they're stuck elsewhere, like basically what, what it's saying is people from Latin American countries that are coming up are bringing yes. their faith with them and they exactly. are, exactly. they're basically skewing the whole polls. To, yeah, exactly. to, to, exactly. But when you turn them off, everyone else is still being honest or being honest, yeah. but you stopped counting half the people because you said they couldn't come here anymore. Uh, it's and so ironic that, that the same kind of groups, if you're going to draw a Venn diagram, the same kind of groups that really want to make America Christian again or Britain Christian again also tend to be the same kind of groups that really don't like immigration, mm. right? Let's yeah. be fair. Let's be honest. 
And yet, if you really wanted to make America Christian again, you'd be letting in everybody, everybody from the global south who wanted to come. Yeah, yeah. So, That's how you make Christ America Christian again. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. what Americans mean by that is actually, we want to make America white protestant again or whatever mm -hmm. that they're thinking mm -hmm. so then i would counter that even even your barnapoles and even your nuns i would say well all that you're seeing it always was none mm -hmm. it's just that people are now starting to have a name for the thing that they always were yeah or even the people that didn't think that they were they're not followers of the way of jesus they are people who look at their skin and go well i'm white where I'm from Texas, so I guess I'm a Christian. Like they're associating hmm. their cultural identity with their Christianity, and and that is changing now. Yeah, and that's good. Yeah, it's in honest in Australia or New Zealand, I forget where. Um, Jedi is actually yeah. <laughs> I, it made the list. I forget which poll I read. Then I was like, okay, too. I was like, how about that? Make it, yeah, religion. Uh, yeah. But it's been a thing there now. It's like a decade now, and the numbers keep <laughs> keep climbing. Um, because it's it's a little bit like the way the Church of Satan operates in America. It's not. Hmm. It's not that there's people who actually think they're Jedi's or actually think they're Satanists. Right. They are, it's a protest yeah. affiliation. To I like them. it regardless. It it's to try laugh. and show the lie uh, uh, to a lot of uh, religiosity in our culture. That Why does this group get special interest? Yeah, They're just using the logic of our own democracy to its proper effect, basically. I want to draw on your knowledge and I want to give people some practical things to focus on good things that they can do to maybe follow the way of Jesus. So I don't know when this is going to release because honestly, right. I'm not that far planned out. Just yeah. just not, just being honest. So, but we know whatever's going to happen, right? Like we know that somebody's going to win. If Biden wins, then the Trumpy American Christians are going to get even worse. Correct. And if Trump wins, then the Trumpy American Christians are going to get drunk on their own Trumpiness. Yeah. So what does and, the average person listening do then on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, really? Probably more than Sunday. Like, what should we do as yeah. Christians trying to follow the way to physically move the pole, even if it makes us look like Kierkegaard or someone else that's going to get lambasted? Like, what do we do? What are some practical two, three, four, twenty-eight, whatever things? Well, not twenty-eight. On the positive, uh, two things came to mind. <laughs> One is just. Once you strip Jesus, once he gets knocked out of Christian religiosity, of the sort of churchianity culture, once he gets knocked out of that, and by the way, he's not welcome in that culture anyway. The easiest way to get Christians mad at you is to stand up and just quote Jesus mm -hmm. at them. I, I can which attest is to that. Well, well known. Mm -hmm. Well known. Mm -hmm. You ask loads of people I know, famous pastors, Brian yeah. Zand, Greg Boyd, yeah. they will tell you the easiest way to get Christians mad is just simply mm -hmm. to quote Jesus back at them. I watched, Jesus is not welcome in these yeah, churches. Sidebar, I watched Brian Zahn had a post yesterday, um, and I don't always like what he says, but he basically wrote a post, and 97% of the post is, I think, Psalm 124, and someone said, you sound a lot like a progressive Christian. And exactly. he's like, sure, if Psalm 124 is a progressive Christian, absolutely. He's like, I, yeah. I don't think you're mad at me here. I, I don't, I feel like, but he wasn't quoting Jesus, but he's still quoting scripture. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know why you're upset at me. Like, if, if that's how you want to read that, I guess that's on well, you, bro. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Lisa Coons, who who is the, uh, she's African-American lady who runs 24-7, the prayer network in America. Uh -huh. And she quoted just Jesus saying, I've come to loose the bonds of the oppressed, set the captives free. And somebody wrote on her Facebook page, like, oh, this is cultural Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, this is what I mean. It's like, we've got to the point where people who call themselves Christians do not recognize His the voice. most famous thing that Jesus said about himself 
and they would they say that's cultural Marxism. Like this is Christendom. This is what has happened. Christendom has given us a culture where there are people fully aware, literate adults who think they are Christian and they do not know the most basic important things about Jesus. Mm. And this is not a marginal thing. This is the majority culture. And people don't want to be aware of that. Statistics will tell us it's the majority culture. Voting records tell us it's the majority culture. Spending habits tell us it's the majority culture. The majority of, do you know that it's really well known that if you want to find a, you can, you can measure somebody's approval for torture of prisoners based on whether they say they're evangelical Christian or not in America. And it's statistically well known that you can track the, the higher you, the more you associate with evangelical Christianity, the more you will agree about torturing prisoners. So just try and imagine a single person in the entire New Testament offering a support for the torture of political prisoners. Do you remember where the other uh, sects of the faith fall, like versus evangelicalism? Like, no, I was specifically about evangelicalism. I, mm, I'm just I read curious. so much of this stuff, I've kind of I've lost it's it. It's all amalgamated, in, in yeah. But it's probably a Christianity Today magazine or something. Sure. It was some, or Barna even. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's just that this kind of stuff happens a lot. And it's I, I want people to know that it's not marginal. It's We're talking central. We're talking everyday, normal Christians going to church think that being Christian, this is why Mike Pence could say that he could replace the name of Jesus with the, with the old glory mm. in his speech. Mm. And he could say that the American way is the way of Jesus. He said that in his speech. He can say it. Nobody gets mad. He can sit down. Him and his speechwriters can write it. They can plan where it's going to happen in the speech. They can get an applause break. And nobody bats an eye. And that's what we have to pay attention to, is that nobody bats an eye. This is why we mean Christendom has done away with Christianity. And so what I want to point out as a positive way to to people is that Jesus is really good. He's actually really good. (laughs) And that noticing the stark difference between the American way or the British way or the middle class way and the way of Jesus is actually just to highlight how good Jesus is. So anything that makes Jesus come into clarity is good for me mm. because he's actually really good. <laughs> mm. So that's like a positive thing. So, I, you know, in your everyday life, what it sort of comes down to is not being a Shadrach, a Meshach, and an Abednego. How did they protest idolatry? They didn't do it by marching angrily against Nebuchadnezzar or gathering their supporters or agitating for religious freedom. They just simply didn't worship the idol. Yeah. And everyone noticed and they got arrested, (laughs) but they just didn't do it like that. Their protest was just not to participate in the worship of the idol. Mm. And part of my work is I'm just going to say this really, really I'm pleading American Christians. If you call yourself a Christian, consider not being patriotic. Consider just weaning yourself off patriotism. Because when it really comes down to it, that is the idol at the end of the day. What's step one there? If it's like a five-step plan, like how do you even, because I don't, as, as an American, 
if you told that to me as, as if you told that to my brother or some good yeah. friends, um, and, and I would say this to my brother, so I'll call him out cause I know he'll love me regardless. <laughs> so, um, yeah. if I told that to him, it wouldn't make sense. Like it would literally be me speaking Greek to him. Like it wouldn't make, but, so if I told him to be unpatriot, like what is, how do you even begin that? But this is where you start to notice the grip it has on our imaginations. That mm-hmm. we, it's easier to imagine. It's easier to imagine actually than, speaking Greek. <laughs> than it is to imagine that I might, my little heart might not go pitter patter when I see the flag flying. Mm. And the earliest Christians saw the, the kind of feelings you feel when you feel patriotic they saw that as a, as a temptation to be weaned off of. I don't know if I mentioned this in the last series, in the last episode, but here in the UK, we got these big double-decker buses. Everybody knows London has double-decker buses. And on the side of these buses, they sometimes plaster big adverts, you know, big advertising. And every once in a while, there's a sexy lady that's plastered on the side of a bus. And I'm a red-blooded heterosexual male, and I like looking at sexy ladies. But I know that that is trying to attract my eyeballs and my attention. Mm. I know that it's trying to press some of the lizard parts of my brain. And so what I do is that's a temptation. My wife wouldn't like me looking too long at that bus. I know it's not good for me either and for my relationships and for my inner thoughts. So I'm going to notice when my attention is trying to be attracted and manipulated. And I'm going to try and wean myself off this primitive manipulation hmm. and it's and i'm not even saying it's unna- it's natural it's deeply natural yeah. for red-blooded heterosexuals to be attracted to women so we're not saying do something unnatural what we're saying is maybe some of the best things in life mean rising above your natural base instincts in this metaphor your wife would be the way of jesus the bus would be patriotism correct yeah the flag so i have had this before listen i also Canadian guy, you know, Canadians love their flag. They like what it stands for. And I used to feel really proud and I would put a little Canadian button on my coat and I'd it's walk just the maple England leaf, and, right? Canadian maple. Yeah, yeah. red, red stripes. I love the, the flag. Looks leaf. great. I like maple trees. So my little heart would go pitter patter when I saw a Canadian flag flying. Mm. And I started to notice that that's kind of similar to what happens when I see a lady on the side of a bus. Is something here that is trying to attract my attention. It's trying to ca- fixate my attention. There's a, there's a narrative, there's an identity that this is trying to instill in me or that it represents. Is that narrative, is that identity, are the actions that led to the foundation of Canada, are the things that it asked Canadians to do for, for the good of their country, are those things that the way of Jesus would endorse? Hmm. And the answer is no. Because you ignore the poor and their fears and the exiled and their pain Because you adore and you defend the lustful pride, the bribes and the lies of the arrogant You've joined that tribe and aligned your brand with the Let me stay on that <laughs> metaphor because I like I like I like working around with metaphors and at my work they would tell you often I tell I explain things through metaphors so you're speaking my love language so um if I'm the church and the bus is patriotism yeah. and I'm trying to stay faithful yeah. to the to the to the bridegroom um yeah yeah do I just not take the bus in this scenario do I go out of my way do I create a new vehicle altogether should I try to change legislation to have the buses not be allowed to advertise 
and all of those are, I'm, I'm stretching the metaphor way beyond, I think, where yeah, you yeah, intended yeah. at the beginning, but hopefully you're, you know kind of what I'm asking. Like, as the church, am, am I trying to change the system? Am I putting myself in a position that I am seen objecting, not worshiping, not bowing down to the idol? Or should I just altogether avert it and not be seen, pray in secret, quote unquote? Well, I think that you just will eventually not, you will, it will be visible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the way that early Christians objected to things was not to form an objection to it. It was usually simply just to not participate and to get on with their life. And if the society around them got offended, then they got offended. But the Christians weren't trying to cause offense. So I wouldn't say like on the 4th of July, go picket your neighbor's hot dog picnic. <laughs> you, mm. don't, you, you don't drown out the sound of the uh, God Bless America with, with worship music. It's more that... Is that directed you, at Sean Foy? I feel like that's yeah, directed at Sean Foy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, but it's more in your life and in your way that you live, live and in the things you teach your children. You just don't instill patriotism as a value. Mm. And you start to realize that being a good neighbor is not the same as being a good patriot. And that, in fact, people who call themselves patriots are some of the worst neighbors because they're some of the least likely to love their neighbor, their actual neighbor. And they're the most likely to identify only the people who look like them and sound like them as worthy of their love. Mm. So being a good citizen is possible without being a patriot. Being a good neighbor is possible. Being quietly governed. All these things are possible. It, it just means you don't love the country that you're in because you recognize it as a human institution that has limited value. Yeah. And what you do is it it releases you just like the early Christians were. You look at the way the apostle Paul treated his different allegiances. We're constantly being told if you read the book of Acts, sometimes he tells everybody how much of a Pharisee he is. Sometimes he tells everybody how he's a Roman citizen. Sometimes he says he's a citizen of Tarsus. He brings it out when it suits him. He can fit in with the crowd, but he holds all of these identities very lightly. Hmm. And he very clearly doesn't put his whole identity in one particular group that he's affiliated with. And he'll even say, to the Greek, I'm a Greek, to the Jew, I'm a Jew, which is this sort of open-handed, clearly doesn't love his national identities. He recognizes them as part of his reality. He uses them as a useful tool, but he doesn't give them his love. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that I notice in the people who I notice as followers of Jesus. They... It's not that they hate America. They just refuse to give it all the attention that it wants because it's a God and it wants worship. And so one of the best things you can do with gods is you starve them of their worship. Yeah. yeah. You just refuse to hate it or to love it. You just think loving and hating is not the correct, it's not the correct approach to this man-made institution. Church so there's a do, benign indifference, really, that you can have to these things. Honestly, not to go back from, I don't even know if it's in the episode, but I'll, I'll say it there. Honestly, that sounds very similar to the uh, advisement I've been giving from one of our counselors of, when your son has some issues, you yeah. just starve that of attention. That version of reality yes. needs yes. to exist in a vacuum. And when it comes out of the vacuum as a different thing, that one gets the attention. But this one gets nothing. Jesus does this all the time. So his his approach to a lot of these things, I can't remember if I mentioned about the, the, the taxes to Caesar is a classic one. 
where I don't remember either. That was a patri- so that was a patriotic. So when they said, "Should we pay these taxes to Caesar?" The tax that Caesar was imposing on the Jews was a racial insult. It was one that was meant to be, you Jews think you're so special, but you have to pay me for the right to worship in your own temple. Hmm. So it wasn't a tax to keep the lights going and the streets clean, right? No, we have not, not discussed municipal. that. Uh, this yeah. first time I've heard that. Say that again. Okay. So when they come to Jesus and say, should we pay Caesar's tax? The tax was a tax that Caesar imposed on Jews as a way to rub their noses in the fact that they were an occupied race. So it wasn't a good civic duty to pay your taxes in order to keep the streets clean. Did they do this in other religions where they had conquered? Because it wasn't just, you know, that... Well, it was connected to the temple. But in, was so it I that way know. everywhere as well, I wonder? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that this one was connected to keeping the temple going. So the Caesar's tax was being used to keep the temple going. Think of how that, the Roman Gentiles are the ones who are keeping the Jewish temple going. So the whole thing is just cor- mm. is vibrating with ambiguity and Hmm. corruption right hmm. and they come to so the pharisees are anti caesar's tax the herodians by the way are pro caesar's tax because the herodians built the temple so pharisees and herodians hate jesus so much that they join together and they come to jesus and say what do you think of this tax and they are essentially asking him to take a side on patriotism hmm. on because this paying this tax was the event that would every year it was during passover they would collect the tax it was always the beginning of a rebellion. It was always the thing that called all the loyal sons mm-hmm. of Judah have to come back to protect the homeland. It was a, a, a patriotic rattle, rallying cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they said, Jesus, should we pay this tax? They aren't asking him, are you, are you a good citizen or a good, are you a good Roman patriot? They're asking him, are you a Jewish patriot? Should we participate in this racial insult? And Jesus says, yes, basically. He says, well, whose image is on this? Oh, give it back to him. We've got bigger fish to fry. Give Caesar what's his. We've got the image of God, which is in everybody to care about. Hmm. If you notice, he's not saying that Roman Empire is evil and corrupt and violent, which it was. He's not saying this tax is being used to pay for corrupt things, which it was. He was just saying, I'm not leading the kind of revolution that tries to redeem the land by kicking out the Gentiles and pay the tax. Take the racial insult. We've got bigger things to worry about. And so he treats something with indifference, which was literally the reason why <laughs> everybody else was even in this land at all. Like it was the whole, their whole identity was formed in what they think about this tax. That it was the refusal to pay that tax, by the way, which led to the great rebellion in AD 70, which was when the Romans finally had enough and they destroyed the temple and they kicked all the Jews out. And huh. it was over that tax. So <sighs> I've not, I haven't so felt this ignorant deal. in a while. I haven't felt this ignorant in a while. I use ignorant intentionally. I like learning new things. But this is part mm. of the like that Jesus is, mm. every time Jesus was given a chance to prove his patriotic chops, when he was given a chance to prove his loyalty and allegiance to his inherited ethnic tradition, for example, he went the other way. He embraced the Samaritan or the foreigner. The story of the good Samaritan is a story against patriotism. Because the Levite and the the priest, they were the ones who shared the man in the ditch, all of his ethnic and linguistic and religious heritage. And they're the ones who proved themselves unable to be a good neighbor. 
and the Samaritan, who's the foreigner, outsider, the hated outsider. He's mm. the one who is the good neighbor, right? So everything Jesus is doing is always basically saying, your national allegiance and your ethnic heritage stuff is not guiding you correctly. Not a good source for morality and goodness. I do not know that tax thing at all. Yeah. Huh. I find it slightly infuriating how every time I do one of these, somebody will say something as if common knowledge. And I'll be like, I didn't know that. But it's not common knowledge. Well, it's not common knowledge because Christians think that patriotism is a virtue. No. And so we're, yeah, we're yeah. all reading with power. So we all read those texts as if it's an instruction manual for how to run a country really well. Yeah. Because that's what patriots do. I've heard that preached in churches as if it's a pro-patriotic text. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Pay your taxes. Uh, you know, pay your taxes. Pay your, pay your taxes. Mm -hmm. Be a good patriot. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. No, it's the opposite. Yeah. Huh. And the reason we can read it that way is because we think that the point of the Christian life is to run a country. So, of course, the New Testament will now give us good advice and, and a guide. Well, in fact, the New Testament gives very bad advice for how to run a country. You have to go to the Old Testament for that. Yeah. Which is what historically you've seen. You've seen Christians not actually paying much attention to Jesus at, at all. all. Yeah. And spending a lot of time with King David and King Solomon and Moses. Yeah. And you just see it happen. Like it's, yeah. Their attention is fixated on how to run a country, not on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Slightly different question, entirely different avenue, but I'm curious because I've been looking at it the whole time. Why the West Coast Avengers? That's not usually at the top of the list for the Avengers. Why West this Coast is, Avengers? Yeah. This was a, I don't know when this, this was in 19, gosh, some nerd will tell me. <laughs> 1989. Have you even read it? Because it's definitely important. You've got it framed there. Have you even read oh, it? Oh, I got it framed because I love the art. So this is a classic homage to a fantastic... If you're a comic book nerd, you'll know that the Fantastic Four uh -huh. had a famous cover where the Mole Man's monster is coming out and the Fantastic Four is swarming around. And so when they made this rather jokey offshoot of the Avengers, and they, they I think they <laughs> set them in LA or Portland or something. There were a couple offshoots. I think there was one up like in Michigan as well. There's a Great Lakes yeah. Avengers as well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they, they redid the cover. So I framed it because I, I love the art. <laughs> I just was curious. I've been staring at this whole time. I was like, why the West Coast Avengers? Has nothing That's, to do it's, it's a joke. With, it's with religion. But <laughs> I just I couldn't help myself. Um, oh, well, it does. Yeah. But you see, I, look, I like comic books. I like Captain America. Oh, you know, one, of my, one of my new favorite podcasts is called Marvels. This show is not brought to you or advertised at all by Marvels. I just genuinely like it. It's based off of a comic book of Galactus coming to just devour yeah. the New York. Um, I, it's I like a graphic Marvels. novel. I, yeah, there's I like know a that book. There's like a 20-part series um oh, called marvels and it's it's, it's done by actors and i'm currently on episode three and it's about 20 minutes long and so i listen to about two a day and yeah. i'm really enjoying it i think uh, kurt busiak wrote that i have no idea they say at the beginning in the pre-roll credits you know based written on that but i'm not listening to that because i'm hitting fast forward and then rewind because i always go too far forward oh yeah. i wonder i gotta listen to that oh it's really good um yeah. i don't know how it follows the book but so uh, 50 years from now, and I want your honest opinion because this is the work you do, is the church better with its addiction to power and how that then ties us to politics? 50 years, 60 years from now. It's, honestly, do you feel like it's better or it's just going to continue to burn to the ground? 50 years is one generation, two generations? 50 years, I'll have grandkids. I doubt that those kids would have kids, maybe if they got busy really early. But 
maybe. So one I generation sus- away or an extra, my kid's generation, my, 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 my kid's kids. I suspect we're going to start seeing a much starker difference between nationalist Christians and non-nationalist Christians. I think it's going to be a dividing line. Like the ones who realize nationalism and this patriotic jingoism and stuff is just not compatible. Like a different religion altogether, like Christian nationalism. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really stark difference because it's already stark, but I think things are separating now. I would say, to be perfectly frank, think about the state of America right now. Right. Look at look at the way the politics works and the evangelicals work and the Catholics work. And now imagine looking at the way the America is right now and thinking, yeah, this is this is good. This is going the right direction. (laughs) That's preposterous. Right. And now imagine that a person who says, yeah, this is good. They're the ones going into leadership right now. They're the ones going in to be a leader of an evangelical church. They're the ones who are getting into politics. Uh, you're already seeing QAnon senators. But aren't they the ones go? The, but the ones not becoming leaders and politicians are because they're fo- they should be following a way that is of of well, Jesus, I, so they wouldn't be really what I'm be running. Is right? I th- there's going to be a there is a this isn't dying away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Like right now, for example, Trump and even like Jerry Falwell Jr. Some of these famous mouthpieces for evangelical politics they don't really believe this stuff like they're they're pretty overtly or blatantly opportunistic mm-hmm. trump especially right very opportunistic he doesn't believe QAnon. he doesn't believe evangelical charismatic he doesn't believe that he's the righteous prophetic leader he's just happy that people like him and so he goes with them right but now imagine that there is a group of people who really do believe this stuff. Mm. They're the ones being activated right now. Yeah. So it is going to get worse. And I don't think it's disappearing. It's going to get a lot worse because the, the people who really believe this stuff are going to double down. They're doubling down already. Yeah. And the culture, the angry, well-resourced, I mean, angry nationalist American Christians are the most resourced group of christians history has ever known they've got more money than anybody else they've got more people than anybody else they're having more babies than anyone else Hmm. they have more power than anyone else than history has ever known they're like the most well-resourced special interest group christianity's ever had so they're not disappearing they're just going to get angrier and angrier but the difference between what they think is valuable and what they want is becoming so much starker now that I'm getting emails all the time from people who, who said, I thought I was losing my faith and now I realize I'm just not an American evangelical. Anymore. Right. Yes. Yes. Print that on a bumper so sticker. I'm not, yes. I'm not saying followers of Jesus are disappearing. <laughs> and a lot of those people are saying they can have the word Christian. I don't think I'm going to win that fight. I'm a bit like that. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to win the fight of the word Christian anymore. I think the word Christian for a lot of people, pretty much means Trump supporter now. Mm. All right, fine. That's sad. It's too bad. Take it, yeah. But I, yeah, I just got to keep going. So I don't think followers of Jesus are going to disappear. But I think that the battlegrounds or the, the rubble is going to clear. After the dust lifts from the battleground, we'll see much more clearly where people are. And I don't think followers of Jesus are going to be sitting in megachurches anymore. No. Can I ask you about QAnon? I, I don't know enough about yeah. it to even know. Yeah, so... I 
I am QAnon. I've just, I'd like to reveal now. <laughs> He's Q. So I, w- I was asked twice this week what QAnon has to do with the church. And I was like, I don't know. Because the best that I knowledge, I thought it was like more of a political thing. Um, and then I haven't read, I've seen people share like CNN articles about QAnon yeah. in the church. And to be honest, I don't want to go to any news website until the election is over. Because I just. I know. For your own mental I health. I don't. Right? I, the same reason that you, you you're having your things with social like I just don't I just I just don't yeah. I, I'd rather do uh, literally enough. anything else I'd rather I'd rather cut the grass with scissors than do but that before <laughs> before we talk about QAnon Seth <laughs> this is part of the positive so you said like what positive can I do I think just not being obsessed with the things that that the world around you is obsessed with is part of your positive mm. like that is a light a city on a hill just not being obsessed have you do you remember there was a while ago there's this article going around about a man who said i'm going to be a crappy citizen no and it, he happened right at the beginning of the trump in 2016 this guy just said do you know what i'm going to be a bad a cra-, he used the word crappy i'm going to be a crappy citizen i'm not going to read the news all the time i'm not going to stay up to date with the current events like it's pretty obviously this this whirlwind of bad news sounds blissful yeah and he checked out <laughs> yeah but he didn't check out in an apathetic way what he said was i'm going to focus on a local problem that I, I know is important and will have an impact on people around me mm. and he has dedicated his energy to clearing up a local lake which was providing drinking water for the town and he he put all his energy into that so you tell me was that a positive or a negative Sounds his, positive for everyone. His benign yeah. indifference to everything that everybody else thought was important kept his sanity and contributed to his neighborhood. It's only bad for the ad revenue, but that's I'm fine with that. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is partly what I say when you when you when you refuse to bow to the idol, when you refuse to just participate in the noisy <laughs> whirlwind, you might not do anything. But just by refusing to participate, you immediately become a little mm. oasis of calm, <laughs> mm. which yeah. is good. Yeah, I like that. So QAnon is the opposite of the oasis of calm. Yeah. So I I thought that was just political. I thought it was just Pizzagate, which I heard about from some podcasts and a few other things. I remember it being when Hillary, somebody yeah. showed up and you know, some people got, got shot in a pizza. In a pizza well, QAnon thing. absorbed Pizzagate. I mean, it's a, it's a mega... Yeah. The headline is it's a pro-Trump conspiracy theory. So that's okay. the headline. But how so, does that connect to the church? So the one of the things it's absorbed is that Hillary Clinton and Bill Gates and all these Hollywood liberal elites are Satanists who kill children and drink their blood. Mm. So the especially okay. the charismatic Pentecostal wing of christianity in america is totally primed for this because they hate hillary clinton (laughs) they love trump and they think satanism is a real and active force in this world and so they are primed for this they also have been primed for generations not to trust the media not to trust the official story coming from any reputable news source because it's liberal bias and it's against christians and all this Mm. so it you're just perfectly primed for a, a conspiracy theory that presses all the buttons that Christians want pressed. I did notice it wasn't, I mean, cause we had COVID hit before, before America did. Mm-hmm. And 
so here I am in England, but I've got my eyes on America too, right? Because of my work and stuff. So I'm sitting in England and we're watching the Italians and the Germans are, are, are sending up, you can read like their editorials and their newspapers and their Facebook stuff. And they're starting to talk about coronavirus and they're talking about what they do and how they do it. And then it comes to England. And now the English, we're sharing all our memes and we're talking about coronavirus and we're buying toilet paper and stuff. And then it finally lands in America. And it wasn't until it got to America, there was no, the conspiracy theory stuff wasn't happening. It was only when it got to America that all of a sudden coronavirus is, in, been invented by 5G and it was invented by Hillary Clinton who's a Satanist and they were going to put microchips in your blood. Like it was Americans who made us go crazy on this. And it was, I noticed it was my, it was American charismatic Christians who were hmm. the ones who were most sharing this stuff. They were primed for it. They were just ready to go. And it, the only people I knew who really lost their minds on that and probably still are losing their minds are Christians. And certainly even in the UK, the ones I know who are really into it are themselves Pentecostal Christians who are very much informed by American nationalist Christianity. Hmm. So there's something in that, that it's, it's, it's kind of fitting their narrative of we are secret warriors against the evil satanic world that hates us and wants to kill us. And it feeds that hero. Talk about comic books. It kind of he feeds that hero narrative. Yeah. That a lot of people, I mean, you know how much American Christians is so weird you guys, American Christianity is the, like I said, it's the most powerful Christians have ever been ever in the history of Christianity. And yet the dominant narrative is we are a beleaguered minority and they're out to get us and we're going to lose our rights. And yeah. there has never been a time when Christians have been as, as solid and secure and well-resourced. I America. ask that question to people when they say they're being oppressed and I'll ask them, when was the last time you were oppressed? And please be specific. Yeah, right. and, and that's what that's the the semicolon that I'll add afterwards. Like, please be specific, and it's always crickets, always. And please be specific, not yeah. what you saw, yeah. not what your friend did. Like, when yeah, was the last right. time you, Stephen, were yeah. oppressed? Yeah, yeah. Please be specific. And then I'm like, well, okay. So yeah. you you were because it seemed traumatic a minute ago. Yeah, but you can't it's, remember it's it. Anger and tears and yeah. rage. Yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah, it didn't happen to you or anybody you know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. The goal of QAnon is to conscript the church's influence and power? Is it political? Is it to break the church? No, possibly? no. The goal like, isn't the goal? to conscript the churches. The churches, what this is, is showing the usurpation of the Christian imagination has just been sucked into this mm. narrative. It's, it isn't got Christians in mind. It's meant to be, he, he, QAnon, the, the anonymous source is meant to be some insider in the Trump administration who is releasing tidbits of information and that Trump is your man. He's like deeply embedded on the inside and he's against the global elites. And eventually he's going to rescue everybody and blow the lid on this. Since we're on, since we're on rate. conspiracy theory, what's the, what's the, the odds that it's, it's somehow the same genetically like grandfathered child of the cue from scripture. What are the odds there? Since we're, <laughs> we're already on conspiracy, like it's gotta be right. It's, it's a, it's a I, title yeah. that gets passed down Q. It's a title. It's the Q manuscript, so I guess Pentecostals do believe in it after all. I get why not? So, anyhow. It's really similar. I was listening to, there's a great, if we're going to plug other people's podcasts, there's one called You're Wrong About That. Have you heard of You're Wrong About That? No, but I like the name it's, already. It's two journalists, and they go back at various pop culture or big events that happened in the last 30 years, 20, 30 years. And they 
just look at them again and they find little details that we hadn't noticed and stuff. And the very first episode is the satanic panic in the eighties mm. where if you remember, there was a huge fuss. That yes. Yeah. Just networks of mm-hmm. child daycares across the country are actually being run as pedophile satanic rings and hearing them talk about that, which that podcast was made five years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you realize, wow, that's, that's just what QAnon is. It's just all the same. It's just come back again. Hmm. And then it's very similar to what, you know, in the Reformation they said about Jews. It's what, and it's what in uh, Germany they were saying the Jews were doing. Hmm. And it's the same story. It's just the actors slightly change. There's always a secret group of wealthy elites and they're always sacrificing babies and eating them. And they're always have a plan to take over the world. And the plan always involves the latest technology, whatever that might be. Always. Yeah. And it just it just happens again and again and again. Yeah. So you're going to like this professional segue because the only podcast that we should really be plugging besides this one is the one yeah. that you do. Um, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> this is the Stephen Backhouse plug hour. <laughs> um, but no, it is good. So um, in closing, I'm going to ask you again, because last time you told people not to do anything that is related to you. And I think that that's a travesty. Your your <laughs> podcast actually is one of the better ones. I was listening to yours with William Paul Young and Brad Jersak um, yeah. uh, just oh, a little while ago. Really enjoyed it. I liked the Q&As, but I'm, I, I'm liking the non-Q&As as well. And Q&A is hard to talk about after we talked about QAnon, but I mean question and answer. Yeah, that's yeah. what I that's, that's what I mean. So where do you want people to go listen to things and you're more than welcome to plug your own podcast there oh go and listen to my podcast it's called tent theology (laughs) tent theology yeah it's based on the venture i started called tent theology which is my traveling theology school Mm -hmm. which i can't travel now so i started a podcast instead and it alternates between interviews with various people some of whom are well known and some of whom are just really good people that i know or who I've come across mm-hmm. and also some of my teaching. So I have years of, of material that I've decided to start to talk into a microphone. Yeah. You had Mark come out a, a few weeks ago, uh, right? Line by line political theology reading of the gospel of Mark. Yeah. Mark. Um, yeah. Mark was, there was an episode on Mark just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I started to release that a bit. I'm not going to do the whole thing on Mark uh, for the free podcast. I think I'm going to put some of it behind the Patreon. It's probably wise. A wall. Cause yeah. I don't think people really want 30 episodes of, they didn't sign on for 30 episodes of Mark. If you want it, you can pay you know, three, <laughs> $3 a month and get, get Mark. Yeah. But I would say if you want, if you're interested, I mean, do check out the interviews I do with Brad Jerzak. Mm-hmm. You know, Brad, he's a friend of this show. Oh, Brad's great. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the, he's, he is easily one of the kindest men I've ever met. I mean, mm-hmm. he's such a nice man. And I want to be Brad Jerzak when I grow up, you know? So there's a <laughs> Brad Jerzak interview where I'm essentially at, he's talking me through my midlife crisis of not wanting to be a Christian anymore. Brad is great. Um, yeah. 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 He, um, well, I'll tell you this in a second. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. Anyway, so I really appreciate your time. For me, it's late afternoon. For you, we're coming on. What sundown? Yeah, sundown? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's dark outside. It's, it's eight thirty at night. It's fine. <laughs> the globe is 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 massive, so it's it's hard to keep track of time in the time zones. So I will say, Joe. By the way, just just if I if people did want to listen to Tent Theology, I was going to say the first three. If you start at episode one, which is fine and it's good, I I recommend that's a good place to start. But the first three episodes are slightly negative it's me dealing with people writing to me in distress Mm -hmm. and they are 
really angry they're upset they're losing their faith and it's all about it, the catalyst was donald trump holding up a bible in front of a church and mm -hmm. then using the state to clear people up but after about episode three we we kind of get the negative stuff out of the way and we turn a corner and we start talking about how good the kingdom of god really is and we start to renew the political imagination so i would say to listeners it's not 20 episodes of us talking about how awful american evangelicals are that actually is not what happens <laughs> we, yeah. we 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 turn the corner on episode three and it becomes how good jesus is and how good the kingdom is and how relevant it can be for actual everyday practical life and i interview a whole lot of americans as well so it's not yeah. an anti-american podcast though all. i will say those first three because you even say you know john writes in and asks and i found myself in the car going yeah i know i know john Maybe not John, but I've heard <laughs> right, that question. You know who that is. that yeah. happened on Wednesday. Yeah. So, exactly. yeah, don't necessarily bypass those, but I totally get that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't yeah. say bypass them. I'd just say be aware yeah. that if you, if you start episode one, that doesn't mean it's going to be 20 episodes of bashing Trump. That doesn't happen. Stephen, thank you again for your time this evening. Very much so. I appreciate it. Well, bless you. It's, it is just an extraordinary bad time of history, but I don't think it's hopeless. I don't think it's hopeless. I do think it's, I think that this is a great time to be salt and light and people mm. of peace. But just remember, a person of peace doesn't mean you're going to drop bombs on your enemies. Mm. Uh, but yeah. we are people of peace and we get to really do that now. Yeah. And it might mean banding together with groups of fellow travelers a little bit more than it means picking fights with our enemies. Yes. Like going into a village and you find Jesus says, go, he doesn't say go and find the person who's most resistant to your message. He says, go and find the person of peace and stay with them. Mm. And if people are resistant, treat them with benign indifference and move on. And I, I think that might be a survival tactic. It's the one I have right now. And I, I find no shame in dealing with the issues of the world the way Jesus told me to, which was seek out people of peace. Yeah. So if the fight is wearing you down, stop fighting. Yeah, I like that. As this year draws to a close... I think that it's important to keep our mindset framed on what the goal is or our faith for next year. And I'll tell you what mine is. Mine is to figure out a way to be quiet more often than I speak, to try to hear other people and understand where they're coming from instead of just lambasting humans because they don't agree with me. And I'm not the best at that. You can ask my wife and my close friends and family but that is what my goal is. I've got to figure out a way to love other people that I don't see eye to eye on with things that are deeply important to me. I don't know what that looks like for you. This week's episode was produced by the patron supporters of the show, and I'm so thankful for every single one of you. Click the button, make that happen. Remember, if you want to go to the store for the show and buy any of the merchandise there, there is a promo code that is going to save you 15%. That is FU2020 because FU2020. So, and then one last thanks. The music today is from friend of the show, Remedy Drive. Their lyrics are haunting, aren't they? They cause you to sit and steep in what the implications of them are. And I think that that is a fantastic and prophetic way to use music. The song today is called Using My Name. And that is on their upcoming release that comes out in the middle of January called Imago Amor. You're going to find links to that song when it's available on the Spotify playlist. I'm thankful for you. Be blessed. 
We'll talk in a week. Say my name in vain For your rights and privilege You trade prophetic witness For economy and prosperity You've betrayed me with your kisses When justice is in famine And when righteousness is starved You bow to the altars of mammon And the monuments of Mars my eyes are filled with fire In my hand I hold seven stars You pledge allegiance to this land But not my country from afar You pound your nails into my hands You rip and open up my scars With my name plastered on your billboards And the bumpers of your cars On your bio city halls And on your paper currency But you really trust in bombs and barriers For your comfort and security you are you using my name You're using my name You're using my name In vain